Our scripture reading from this morning uh, is taken from uh, Romans chapter 1, verses uh, 16 to 32. This is God's word. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse." For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth, of, uh, truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. For they were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that is living and active. So we invite your spirit to come and apply your word to our hearts this morning. In Christ's name, amen. Our culture is uh, very skittish uh, or shy about... Uh, what is called absolutes. We believe often that truth is only in the eye of the beholder and uh, truth is relative to simple culture and worldview. And I think in some ways uh, this is really helpful because what it does is it honestly highlights the complexity and the nuance of life as it is presented to us. It helps us to see that the world more often is very gray than it is black and white. But our culture, in some ways, has gone too far in its rejection of absolutes. And in some ways, we've descended into just pure relativism, where everyone simply defines truth for themselves. Francis Schaeffer once said this, he said, "...in passing, we should note this curious mark of our age." The only absolute allowed is the absolute insistence that there is no absolute. 
I think part of the reason we've reacted so strongly against this is because I think we've made a false assumption about absolutes. After all, they feel weighty, they feel restrictive, they feel repressive. It feels as if they impinge upon our freedom and we need to be free to keep all of our options open. But what if those absolutes that we are so quick to reject are actually the pathway to freedom? Instead of absolutes being the opposite of freedom, what if they are the gateway to freedom? The book of Romans that we've been looking at is the the thickest and the most doctrinal book probably in all of the Bible. And it's full of these mysterious absolutes, absolutes that are shrouded in the hidden mysteries of God, and yet at the same time they are essential for believers in Jesus Christ. And yet the main theme in this book that is full of all of these absolutes is how you and I can experience freedom. The passage that we just read, I don't have to tell you this, but the passage that we just read may be the most heavy-hitting passage in all of the New Testament. It speaks very honestly and plainly about the state of humanity that includes you and me. In many ways, it certainly is not palatable to modern sentimentalities. And yet what it does is it lays the foundation, the absolute truth for what we need to know and experience in order to truly experience freedom. It paints the background beautifully for God's grace and for his mercy. There's really three absolutes that we see in this passage, a rebellious exchange, a necessary consequence, and then finally, an an experienced power. And what might be the best advice for this passage and for the entire book of Romans is to buckle up, because it often is a wild and mysterious ride. First absolute we see is right off the bat in, in verses 18 to 23, and that is a rebellious exchange. Verse 18 says this, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. This is an incredibly provocative statement. It tells us that all of humanity, whether they deny it or not, knows the truth about God because it has been made plain to them. All men look around the world, the world around them, and they know that there is a God. The National Geographic photographer beholds the knowledge of God every time he takes a photo. The researcher beholds the knowledge of God when she peers through a microscope at strands of DNA. The biologist beholds the knowledge of God when she studies the migratory patterns of animals. A parent beholds the knowledge of God when their children are born and then just 10 seconds later it feels like they're going off to college. Almost every day I pass a Loyola College building, an academic building on the corner of Charles Street and Cold Spring Lane. And emblazoned on that building is this quote from Gerard Manley Hopkins, the world is charged with the grandeur of God. 
The world is electric with the glory and the presence of God all around us. But what this passage tells us is that we don't want to hear it. Instead, we suppress this truth. We, we push it down. And why do we do that? Because if we believe that there is a God, then that means that we are not. So instead, verse 21, we do not honor him as God. And we exchange the glory of God, the glory of the immortal God, for images. Verse 23, we ignore the truth that is around us and we then give ourselves over to idols, to God replacements. Friends, really, this really is the essence of what the Bible calls sin. And that word sin is maybe just as unpopular culturally as the word absolutes is. Many have said that sin, despite the fact that we don't like to talk about it, is the only empirically verifiable doctrine in all of the scriptures. All you have to do is turn on the evening news and you will see sin every day. And yet, in some ways, the word has become too severe for us culturally. David Brooks, who's a a writer for the New York Times, writes about this. He tells a story about how his most recent book, uh, The Road to Character, uh, before it was published, he sent it to several other different publishers just to get their feedback and input on the book. And one of the publishers came back to him and said, we really like your book, The Road to Character, but you talk about sin too much. Could maybe you change the word a a little bit? Maybe change the word sin to the word insensitivity. And what he realized at that point is culturally that's become a very unpopular word. So what he did is he, he took to defining sin in a very ancient way, the, the way St. Augustine defined it. He found it more culturally valuable to define sin as disordered love. You see, we all have a love for friendship and a love for popularity But when your friend tells you a secret in private and then you blab it out in public, you've sinned. Why? Because your love of popularity has trumped your love of friendship. You have disordered loves. And you could use this framework to help us understand this passage. We ought to know and love the truth of God that is on display all around us, but instead we choose to love ourselves above all other things and suppress the truth. Friends, this is the core of sin. Maybe you could call it the sin that that is behind all the other sins, the desire to be our own gods, to go our own way, to be our own masters. We suppress the truth and the reality of God so that we can be our own gods. Sin is exchanging or is, is engaging in this rebellious exchange. The second absolute we see is is really the necessary consequence. And you read about it in verses 24 to 32. Three times Paul, Paul uses the phrase, God gave them up. He says it in verse 24, 26, and 28. And what he's saying is that part of the wrath of God is this giving up or this giving over. And and this means that, that since we want to be our own gods, we have to deal every day with the necessary consequences that come from that. 
If you know us, you know that uh, about a year ago, uh, our family uh, adopted a dog. I'd been pushing for a dog for a long time. I finally uh, managed to pull it off. And uh, we adopted a dog. And what we found out when we adopted her is that most likely she had lived uh, the first two years of her life in a cage. It was a very sad story. And, and, but she's been a wonderful dog for us. She's so great with our kids and she's become a part of our family in many ways. But because she spent the first two years of her life in a cage, she now hates going into her crate or her cage that we have for her. When she does, she cries and, and she barks and she whimpers. And uh, uh, what she's done at times is, is lick her paws because of all the anxiety that she has because of being in this cage. And lately, what she's done is she's begun putting her paws through the grates of the cage and scraping the drywall in our basement. If you go in our basement, there's a section of drywall with all these holes in it because she scraped the drywall in the holes. She stuck her her muzzle out of the other side of, of the crate to an exposed section of drywall and she's begun gnawing on the drywall in our basement. So the moral of the story is if our house collapses, you now know why. Because of our dog who's been put in our cage. You see, you see, because we put her in the cage, all of these kind of ugly consequences are now spilling out. And in some ways, this is Paul's point in this passage. When we suppress the truth, when we exchange it for a lie, then God just simply gives us what we want. He gives us over to the consequences that come from this truth suppression. C.S. Lewis said that the lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded and are therefore self-enslaved. He later famously said this. He said there are only two kinds of people in the end. Those who say to God, thy will be done. And those to whom God says in the end, thy will be done. All that are in hell, choose it. This is what Paul is getting at here. Paul is is giving us the fruit of our truth suppression. This initial sin gives birth to others. Verse 24 to 25 talks about lusts giving birth to impurity and the dishonoring of our bodies. Verses 26 to 27 give us really the full New Testament understanding of homosexuality. Verses 28 to 31 talk about a debased mind, covetousness, malice, disobedience to parents, gossip, slander, and on and on and on. What is Paul's point here? His point is that sin ultimately is the great equalizer. You see, people, religious people who are really proud of their religion, who don't really understand the gospel, look at this like a checklist. Well, I'm good here. I've got this covered, but I'm not really good or I'm weak over here. Or these are the real sinners in this passage, and I'm only kind of a sinner because I'm over here in this passage. Paul lists 21 different sins here. And he's not offering for us a checklist for our spiritual inventory. What he is doing is he wants us to see that we all are condemned. Every one of us is represented on this list. Every one of us deserves the wrath of God and the punishment of God because we have suppressed the truth and given ourselves over 
to these sins. What are the consequences? Verse 18, the wrath of a just God. God, in order to be true to his character, his perfect justice must punish sin. His justice and righteous anger must be visited on those who rebelled. But also we see the consequences in verse 32. We deserve death, not just physical death, but a spiritual death. We deserve eternal estrangement and separation from God. Friends, if you look at this list and you see a checklist for your spiritual health, then you're missing the point. If you look at this list and and use it as a means to judge others, making yourself seem more righteous than the next person, then you are missing the point as well. But if you look at this list and see yourself as one who is deserving of God's punishment, if you accept this, this true diagnosis of your condition, then you've truly grasped what God is saying in this passage. So we've seen this rebellious exchange. We've seen the the necessary consequences. But finally, we see an experienced power in verses 16 to 17. For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. For years, uh, I used to drive out to Deep Creek Lake uh, once or twice a year. And for those of you that don't know, Deep Creek Lake is, is about as far out in western Maryland as you can go. And even though it's really kind of flat here in Baltimore, once you get past the city of Frederick as you're going west on Route 70, you realize that there actually are mountains in Maryland and they are quite beautiful. But if you drive uh, through that section of road, what you'll do is you'll notice that uh, instead of going around the mountains, many sections of Route 70 are actually cut through the mountains. And and as you drive through the mountains, you can look to the left and the right and you can see these exposed rocks and and the, the kind of years and years of rock formations that have happened because of that. And if you look really closely, what you can see is you can see these these long shafts that were drilled into the mountain where the engineers dropped dynamite into the mountain and then exploded it one day so they could level the mountain and create the road. I often, when I drive through there, wish I could have been there to see the sheer power, the explosive power of the dynamite as they leveled uh, these mountains out in western Maryland. Well, friends, when Paul writes this passage, the power of God, the Greek word that he uses here is dunamis, which is the same word that we get our word dynamite from. And what that tells me is that, friends, if you feel powerless to overcome sin in your life, if you feel powerless to overcome the wrath of God, then you are right. The gospel is the power. It's the dynamite of salvation for everyone who believes. Because in it we read not just of an escape from the wrath that we deserve, but a righteousness that comes not through our performance, but through faith in Jesus Christ. All of this we have in Christ 
the instrument of God's salvation. Yes, you and I are guilty of a rebellious exchange. Yes, we all traffic in the consequences of it each day, perpetuating it with our sin. But there is a power that can be experienced that is greater than all of it. The power of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. Let's pray.